So if you were around last time, you might remember that um, we reached our first challenge in Acts. Up until last week, it had been pretty plain sailing. Jesus had given them a plan. There were these concentric circles. They were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And we see that being worked out as Acts moves on. He has equipped them. He has poured out his Holy Spirit to enable and to empower his people to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Things are going well. And they were growing, we said last week. Somebody was there with a clicker, and they are counting people. It's extraordinary. And there were 120 at the beginning. That jumps to 3,000. That jumps to 5,000. The gospel works. But then last week, we began to see some opposition. And it came from the outside. Do you remember it was the religious powers that be, the Sanhedrin. Why did it come? Well, it came off the back of the apostles healing a man who was unable to walk. And it came off the back of the apostles teaching about Jesus and the resurrection. We are in the era of raising up, of resurrection. And the Sanhedrin, the elders, they're wanting to squash the Christians to stop their message. But they let them go. So the Christians then head off back to their prayer meeting, praying to sovereign, the Sovereign Lord, if you remember. So there was opposition last week from the outside. This week there's opposition kind of from the inside. Ananias and Sapphira. It is shocking that the severity with which Ananias and Sapphira are taken out of the game is a challenge to us. I take it it's not normal. This is not the way God normally deals with our sin, thankfully. I think the difference in this case is that this was a vital time in the church. That their lies, their examples, that that may have spread and infected. And rather like the need to remove cancer before it does too much damage. So this couple are, are taken away. They're gone. And so the church then continues to develop and to flourish. So I'd say this is not normal. I don't think it's unheard of today. But it's not normal. But that means we need to be clear. This isn't just a history lesson though. This isn't just something interesting that happened in the early church. Something for us to look at and gaze upon. I think there are lessons that can be drawn. There are principles that we need to work through. So first point in our our verses that this is the model of a united church end of chapter 4 what does Luke emphasise Luke emphasises the power of their teaching in verse 33 with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus but he emphasises too the impact that the gospel is having within the church community I find that quite striking it's changing how they relate to each other very tangibly. To put it crudely, they aren't just able to talk the talk. They are walking the walk. This is authentic Christian living. It's not just theory or an idea or a philosophy. It's impacting everyday life. Impacting how they spend their money. Impacting how they they treat one another. Not just a hobby. But it is real. 
And you see this beautiful snapshot of the reality of their faith being worked out. So have a look at 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. All down to verse 34, there was no needy person among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to anyone who had need. It's an extraordinary snapshot from Luke. I think of what church ought to look like. Well, why else would he include it? A couple of thoughts. Sometimes people look at this and say, well, this is communism. That's what's going on, isn't it? Everybody had everything in common, and so communism is biblical. I'm not a political theorist, and you can come and take me down later on this, but I don't think that's quite right. There's a, there's a slight but a significant difference here. I think rather than saying what's yours is mine, as I think communism would, they're saying what's mine is yours. The difference is this is not a law imposed from the outside telling me how to spend my money, saying that my stuff is yours. This is grace from the inside transforming my view of stuff and money and other people, challenging my generosity, challenging my comfort. So they are saying, what's mine is yours. The other challenge as well, which I think I've just probably got an Ephesians mode on at the moment, is this seems to be quite a broad church. I think I'm seeing Ephesians everywhere, but in our morning meetings we've been seeing that churches ought to be diverse, or at least as diverse as the area that they find themselves in. So in Ephesians, in the mornings, we've seen Jew and Gentile united around the gospel, reconciled together, war done away with, dividing wall of hostility removed. One church... And Paul is saying, live at peace. Live at peace amongst yourselves. Here it's striking because you've got one group of believers who are incredibly rich landowners. They're they're generous, but they seem to be very rich. And you've got folk who are needy. Perhaps folk who were needy. Maybe I'm wrong, but in our church cultures we would say, well, if you're in Ephesians, you'll have more fruit if you do a Jewish church and a Gentile church. Go for that. You'd have more fruit here if you do a rich church and a poor church. You can be more culturally appropriate for the kind of people you're wanting to to reach. But I'm just struck in passing as you go by, this is a real church with rich people who are generous and poor people who are helped. God is at work. Which is why it's striking, verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. They were one in heart and mind and so there was a generosity. There was a unity. The gospel impacted how they relate to one another. A genuine care. I've said before, but I keep banging on about it. One of my dreams for Morden Road is that we would represent the area that we're in. We would be a church that unites town and gown, even historically, if you look down the ages, that doesn't happen. Oxford town people do not like the university, and vice versa. There are great examples of that. But if the gospel reconciles, 
if it removes dividing walls of hostility, then that should be the kind of thing that we see. Not just having town-type churches or gown-type churches, but real gospel churches with a reconciliation between town and gown. There are loads of other types of people in this area. Wouldn't it be great if we could reach them? The gospel could do a work in their lives. And for here, it was rich and poor. Though I take it we can't duck the challenge of generosity. When grace affects us, when we get God's generosity to us, it changes what we think about when we think of money or possessions. Like I said a while ago, I heard of a church in Oxfordshire seeking to buy their first ever building. Um, and there were people in their church who were taking on second wages, taking on loans, selling their stuff, giving away all their savings. Because they saw the need, they saw God's generosity and grace to them. And they were prepared to, to give when they saw the need. It's convicting, isn't it? Has the gospel changed your view of money? Has your gospel changed how you spend your money? Are you generous? Do you just give enough to kind of salve your conscience? Has it changed your view of possession? So, so you know your stuff, yeah? Perhaps the stuff in your room or the stuff in your house. Your laptops, your furniture, your cars. Have a look at verse 32. What does verse 32 say about your stuff? It says, your stuff is our stuff. It says, my stuff is your stuff. Because not one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. Doesn't that change how you think about your possessions? The things that the Lord has entrusted to you? That challenges me. This is a passage to to chew over, to pray about, to come back to again and again. It changes how we view the things that we own, whether we really own them. I'd urge you, initially, if you're someone who would call Magdalen Road Church their spiritual home, then to think about giving. We're not a part of a denomination. We don't have any external funds. At times, finances are tight. If you were around this morning, you saw a red line in between that line and that line. You look on the website, you'll see more. So to consider giving regularly. But as well, just to pray about money and possessions and the challenges from this passage. Pray that God would move your heart to make you generous like these rich Christians here. If you even had spare houses or fields or savings or that bonus at work, would you be able to give them up like this? To say, I've seen extraordinary generosity at Magdalen Road in my being here for two and a half years. I've seen people give very generously, giving to those in need, sharing with those who don't have from people who do have. These are challenging verses. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. 
And the problem is, this stuff matters. Because when you come on to the next section, you see what happens. So it's the challenge to a united church. Verses 1 to 11. And we've said it's extraordinary. We've said it's cancer being chopped out at an early stage. We've said there was a challenge from within, although I say that with a slight caveat, of course, that verse 3, it is Satan who is at work seeking to divide and destroy. So it is a challenge from within, and yet he has come from without, influencing those within, seeking to cause division, I take it, within this church. Notice two dangers in this account. Two dangers. The first one is the danger of simply playing the part. So it seems to me that Ananias and Sapphira wanted to project the kind of image that everyone else is so that they do the same sort of stuff as everybody else and so they lie to the apostles. They see rich landowners like Barnabas, like Joseph, giving and there's a trend to do it and so they want to do it as well. Verse 1, now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. They're dishonest. They lie about what they're doing. They lie to the apostles and they lie to God. And we say, is it such a big deal? Imagine someone sells a house and brings 75% of it and lies it at the feet of the elders. It'd be great. Would we accuse them of lying? Why does lying actually matter so much? I take it it's not that they've kept some back, it's just they've said that they haven't. That's why lying matters. Again, I, I'm seeing Ephesians everywhere, so forgive me, but I think it links in really well with the, the passage from last week in chapter 4, the importance of truth. Paul has been very clear on the importance of speaking truth. If you're a united church, 4 verse 32, one in heart and mind, and God is at work among you, and you start lying, then division comes. Because when you lie, then you lose trust. And when you lose trust, then you divide. And when you divide, then the work of the cross unravels. You are de-reconciled. I find it striking that there is unity There's a challenge to that through untruth. So both of them, Ananias and Sapphira, deliberately imply that the money they gave was all that they received. They try to pull the wool over the apostles' eyes and he takes them out of the equation. So that's the first danger of simply playing the part. The second one is the danger of thinking God simply doesn't mind. He doesn't mind about sin. So the first danger seems to be more of the horizontal. The two are linked very tightly together. The first one is horizontal. It's me trying to impress you. Me trying to fit in and play a part to act. The second danger is that we forget the vertical. 
We, forgot that we forget that God does not like sin, that God cannot exist with sin. We forget that God is holy. And so how easily we forget all respect, majesty. God is reduced to one who is not powerful, who is not able, who is not worthy of our fear. But there's a striking response when Ananias and Sapphira are removed. So in verse 5, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. What's the response of the people? It's fear. Fear of God. It's as if Ananias and Sapphira had forgotten God. They had simply begun to treat the church as a human organisation. They had forgotten who was the church's head. Let me urge you to not be concerned about having other Christians to think well of you. Let me urge you to to not be concerned for just having a reputation of holiness, but actually to live your life transparently before God, to fear Him, to remember His goodness, His justice, to seek to please Him as you live, to as far as it is possible in these sinful bodies to aim for integrity, transparency, Because you see, we can fool one another. We can pretty easily fool one another. But we can't fool God. I say these things don't normally happen, but I read an account recently of of a Baptist pastor in Australia. I don't know if it's apocryphal. Um, The place I read it seemed to imply it wasn't. Baptist pastor in Australia, he takes up a new post in a church, he discovers that three of the most influential office holders are actually having an affair with different people. And he confronts them. He confronts them as other people have confronted them. They were unrepentant, and because of the setup, um, they couldn't be removed easily. So this new pastor thinks, well, do I move on? I'm not sure I can stay here. But instead, he, he says oh, he'll stay for a year and he prays for God to purify the church. And within the year, the three people concerned were dead. One from cancer, one from a heart attack, and one from a car crash. And if we're cynical, we say that's a coincidence. But I wonder if a believer would say, well, that's extraordinary. That's the kind of thing we read of in Acts 5. That's a cancer being removed from a church. Fundamentally, it seems to me, Ananias and Sapphira come down to the importance of the purity of the church. The importance to God of the purity of his bride. We're not just a social club, but there's a sense in which we're a display of God's glory to the watching world. 
And if we're a display of God's glory to the watching world, then the purity of his church matters. He, he sets up systems and structures to keep his body pure, to keep his bride pure. The normal result would not be immediate death in a church. If there's obvious sin like this, the normal result would be something like church discipline, someone removed from the fellowship. So you can read later on Matthew 18 or various bits in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2. Deliberate, unrepentant, public sin in church. Jesus says we need to challenge that because the purity of his church matters. And if we challenge it and the situation escalates, then it goes to the leadership. And if they're not repentant still, then they're to be removed from the body and treated like a tax collector and a sinner, which I take it means they're to be treated as if they weren't a Christian outside the body of believers so they hear the gospel again. Now as free churches, we can do that kind of stuff. We can have memberships. That's a joy, in a way. The ability to keep a church pure as much as we can this side of eternity. Some of you will know my background in church planting. I've been involved a little bit with church discipline over the years. It's something, thankfully, has not been common. Um, But one of the things with church planting, I found at least, was that you would get the more fruity folk with kind of Christian backgrounds coming to check you out to see what was going on. Maybe being a younger guy, you're an easier target. Maybe a smaller body, they can have more chance to influence people. Maybe they were just thinking that you were the answer because you weren't their old church and didn't know their background. But a few people turned up the first year or so. Um, one guy in particular sprung to mind thinking about this passage. He, he got to know people. It seemed okay at first, very genuine, very honest, very open. And then he began to say stuff that wasn't particularly appropriate. He began to compliment some of our ladies, our married ladies, in a sort of slightly unhelpful way. He began to complain about the leaders. And he began to sort of try and sow division it's very interesting. Division within marriages between husband and wife. Marriages, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm within the church as well. So division within marriages and division within the church between different people. Setting people up against each other. Being quite unhelpful. And it reached a point where as we as leaders had to speak to him and we said to this guy, we would love you to stay, but you need to stop talking like this. It's inappropriate. You're causing division within the church. It seems you're trying to stir things up. And so we worked through what the implications of him staying would be. And he didn't stay. That would be the modern day equivalent, I take it, of Ananias and Sapphira normally. That seems to be the kind of stuff God has set in place to keep his body pure, to keep the church pure. This is an extraordinary case where they're just removed from the situation. But the point is, sin matters. Sin within churches can spread and infect and destroy and cause death. We're not just a social club. We're a display of God's glory to the world. And when there is sin, then God minds. He he loves his bride, he loves the church. He loves her purity. And he doesn't want sin in there.